Welcome to Sunday service. If you guys are new here, we want to welcome you. My name is Tony, uh, pastor here at uh, True Love. If you're joining us online, welcome, welcome. Hey, we are in a uh, in our series, our our whole entire series for this year. Actually, our theme for the year is rhythm with Christ, right? Rhythm with Christ, and and just in case we forget, I, I want to just kind of just reshape and re. re um, we cast this vision for you for why we're having a theme this year like that. Because, uh, let me try to put it in a different way, okay? Rhythm with Christ. Sometimes along the way of our life, we don't, what we don't realize is that we've opened ourselves up to so many other voices around us. We've opened ourselves up to so many different influences. The Bible would call that the spirit of the age. Whatever it is that's the cultural narrative or the spiritual narrative of this age, speaking into our lives, telling this is what you need to do to be successful. This is what you need to do to be happy. This is what you need to do to stand up on your own. This is what you need to do as a person living in this world, right? And we have all these voices speaking into us. What we don't realize though, what we don't realize is that all those voices, all these narratives, they are opening us up to the voices of a spiritual realm, a demonic realm that is constantly seeking to chain us down, okay? The way Satan works in, in, in the life of a believer, in the life of people in general, is that he never gives us the full chain of bondage. He doesn't just put the claps on us and just hold us down. He never does that. You know why? Because if, if, if he was to come to you and say, hey, you make those choices, and eventually this is what's going to happen to you. You're going you're gonna to find yourself lonely. You're going to find yourself lost. You're going to find yourself depressed. You're going to find yourself empty. You're going to find yourself chasing and never being full. You're going to find yourself addicted. You're going to ruin your family. You're going to ruin your legacy. And the, and the choices you make are going to destroy the way your children are, the way their children are going to be. If he told us this up front, and if we saw this up front, no way is anyone going to be like, yeah, chain me up. Right? No one would take the chains. No one would, would willingly, I think we're smarter than that, hopefully. What does, what does Satan do, though? He doesn't give us the full chain. He gives us what? He gives us a link, like this, right? The link is like, hey, be happy. Just do what, do what makes you happy. Make a choice. Choose happiness. Choose your ambition. Choose your joy. And every choice that we begin to make, we begin to build our own link. Satan doesn't give us the full link. You know what he does? He gives us the choices to make and we build our own chains. We begin to create these choices that opens us up to, by the movies we watch, the things we surround ourselves with, the people we're with. We build these chains that hold us down. No wonder we find ourselves a journey of lost people, addicted, self-medicating, people constantly chasing and never finding. The Rhythm of Christ series is, is about, the, the vision for this year, it's, it's about realizing the choices you're making, realizing what you are doing, realizing the impact and the voices around you, and coming into a rhythm with God that breaks those chains. The rhythms of prayer, when you begin to break the chains of prayer, break the chains of, 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 of oppression over your family, right? How many of us have family members that we've, we've, we've allowed for generational curses to keep moving and, 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 
and, and, and continuing from one generation to the next? When are we going to be like Hannah to stand up and say, no more? Will I allow the voices in this generation to speak into me? I, this time, will choose the heart of my God. When are we going to begin the rhythm of prayer when you, when you start saying, you know what? No, not this church. I'm not going to build a church or build a community of brothers and sisters based on the feelings of what we do and what we don't do. That our faith is on Christ and Christ alone. That our finger pointing, our judgment is not based on, hey, you suck or you suck or you're not there yet, but the fact that, hey, Christ. It's all about Christ. That we would love all the saints. When are we going to start? See, every choice you make, when you choose, even in the church, not to love each other, the chain. What, what is more useless in this world than a church that is impotent when it comes to love? And as Kevin talked about last week, right? Some of us, we, we, we want to get out of this state. We just can't afford to get out of this state because it's a hellhole, we think, right? If I can just move to where? Texas. Where else? What other, what other states out there? Florida, right? Everything would be so much better. Everything would be so great. You know, all the while, we hear the prayer of Abraham. If there was even 10 righteous, God, would you spare it? And God says, if there was 10, I would spare it. Abraham never went back to down to one because he knew even if there was one, God would spare it. And we are here in this place. Guess what that one is? You are that one. You carry the righteousness of God in this place. By your prayers and by the way you live, God can spare this city, this town, this state. When you think around, you look around the, the, our, our social place, our culture, and you think oh, it's all going to hell, everything's useless, everything's going to burn down. Right? You forget something. I love the analogy he used about the checkmate analogy. I, actually, I had that analogy. I was holding on to it for a while. I was waiting for the right moment to use it. I can't believe he used it before me, right? But uh, it's such a great analogy, because why? Because even though we feel like everything's going to hell, Satan's going to win, God still has one more move. God has one more move, and that move is you. You are that move, that you would bow down and pray for your city, pray for, the, pray for your town, pray for your state, Pray for the legacy to come because you're going to raise your kids in this place. You're going to raise your children in this place that you're going to fight for it, right? A lot of us, we don't want to have children anymore. We don't want to fight for our state because we don't have children. He's like, who cares? I'm going to die anyway, so who cares about that? But those of us who are believers, who, you know what, who values the idea of spiritual legacy, I want to create something. I want to create something, be a part of something that's going to help bring flourishing and prosperity to the place. So we pray for our city, pray for what's to come, not allowing for Satan to say, hey, build your own chain, tie yourself up for the next 20, 30 years, keep chasing after that. It makes you happy, doesn't it? Keep going. Before we know it, we look back and we realize we're bogged down by the chains that we build ourselves. You follow? The Rhythms of Christ is a series about, hey, let's get back into rhythm. The rhythm of Christ when it comes to our prayer life, our work life, our relationship, even our rest, that we have a rhythm for Christ in the midst of all of that. 
And today I want to continue that journey of prayer, rhythm of prayer, as we get into uh, the prayer of giving. The prayer of a selfless, sacrificial life of generosity. Because you may not think that being generous has any effect, but actually what we're going to learn today is that financial generosity and giving is a key component of having a true encounter with God. The ability to have a generous heart in giving is actually how you have a real encounter with the living God. You guys pray for a lot of things. And the, the, the QR code up there will tell you later, I'm going to put all those prayers for you guys. Please look at it. Please change the rhythm of your prayer. But today I want, I want us to develop this rhythm of prayer, a prayer of generosity, a prayer of giving. Open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It is the, the chronicler, the one who wrote 1 Chronicles, he is basically retelling the history of Israel. And in this section, he's telling the story of David building a temple, preparing to build a temple for the Lord. 1 Chronicles 29 is David telling his people, and, he's, and they're, they're recapturing it and re, recap, recasting the vision. This is uh, during, after the exile from Babylon. All the people are gathered back, and people have forgotten their history. They have forgotten their past, and so they, they, they don't want them to make the same mistake again. So the chronicler retells the story, retells the history, and says, hey, David came, and he prepared a temple for the Lord. And they share the story. And in this, in this retelling, we're going to see something. We're going to see what David wanted for his people more than anything else. King David, the one king that God says is a man after my own heart. What, God, what David wanted more than anything for his people. We're going to see how David went about giving it to them. And we're going to see how we can have even more of that. Okay. First Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to read from verse 1 to 5 first. I want to give you guys a, uh, some context after I read this. But this is um, David here preparing the building of God's dwelling. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as the onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple." 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the building, for the gold work and the silver work, and, all, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? What did David want for his people? Was he just, he, he just kind of in the end of his age and he just wanted to make a legacy for himself and build a temple? No. If you ever read through the first uh, first Chronicle, what you will begin to see in David's heart is this. David, from the moment he became king, what he desired more than anything else, his passion, his hunger, was that he, that he was able to get the presence of God into the midst of his people. He wanted 
the presence of God in the midst of his people because what he realized among his people was this. They were worshiping God with their mouth, but their heart was so far from God. They, they, they came to worship. It's like paying taxes. Nobody wants to pay taxes, but everyone has to do it. And so he looked at his people and he said, nobody here wants to worship God, but they have to do it because they are a Jewish nation. He said, this is not the way the people ought to be, especially to the living God. And so throughout the whole scripture, throughout, throughout David's life, his heart was, he wanted God's presence to be with the people. Because the, like for example, the first thing he did when he became king was he went back to get the ark. The Ark of the Covenant, right? It's like, you guys, have you ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's that thing. It's, it's, it's the Ark of the Covenant, right? With the, 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 the cherubim on top, the wings of the angels. And in that place, before that was supposed to be the very Shekinah glory, which is the glory of God, the presence of God himself. Inside the Ark was the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, and the manna from heaven. All of that was supposed to represent God's presence, him among his people. And you know where it was at this point when David became king? It's on the border on the border of Israel and the Philistine nation. And that was supposed to be the metaphor of God's presence with his people at that time during the reigns of Saul. So they took the, or after the reign of Saul, they took the, the covenant, they took the ark and they, they stole it from God's people and they left it there. Now why did they take the ark? Why was it out there in the first place? Because the Israelites, their heart wasn't with the Lord. They saw the ark, you know what they saw it as? a religious artifact, a superstitious way of engaging in warfare. So they thought to themselves, if we could just take this ark out there, this ark will give us the blessing to win this fight. They forget that the ark represents the very presence of God, that God was a person and not just a box. But they took the ark out there and they said, oh yeah, now that we have this box, we will win this war. And what happened? They lost the war. Right? Because God is, not an art, God is not an artifact. He is a person. And he let them lose this fight. And the presence of God, the ark of God, was actually placed on the borderline. The distance, uh, a, a, a representation, a foreshadowing of the relationship between God and his people at the time. So far, so separate. So what does David do? What does David do? The moment he became king, he went back out and he took it in. Because why? His passion, his heart, was that the presence of God be in the midst of the people. That the presence of God lived among God's people. And he was so excited. This is how he knew the reality of God was so real in his life. As he brought it in, you know what he did? He danced until he went butt naked. I don't know how you can dance till all your clothes fall off, but that's what David did. He, he literally was jumping and dancing and rejoicing at the fact that the presence of God was coming back to his people. His wife, looking from afar, was like, what are you doing? You're the king of a nation. And he said, I will be even more undignified than this. I'm not ashamed of my God. I'm not ashamed of what people think about me. I don't care if I'm butt naked among the people. God has returned to the people, right? He wanted them, David more than anything else, wanted them to give their hearts 
to God. Let me ask you a question here. It's a, it's a telling question. How far would you go? How far would you go? How much would you risk? How much will you work to ensure that the presence of God is in the midst of those around you? Of your children, of your colleagues, of your brothers and sisters in church. Maybe it's time to look around and start praying. Do you have that same passion, that same drive? As a king, what he did was he wanted God's presence to be with the people. He wanted the people's heart to have God, to desire it. When was the last time you did that? To your brothers, to your sisters, maybe to a family member. When was the last time you looked at the people who worked the next cubicle around you and said, I will do anything that they would know God, that God's presence would be here, that we would do anything if God's presence would be in this place. How far would you go? Maybe you need to start changing our prayer up. Instead of praying that work is better and my life is great, maybe our prayer needs to be, Lord, give me a passion that will go to the ends of the earth to bring your presence to the people who need it. What we find out in the book of Chronicles is that the ark wasn't enough. The ark, the ark didn't change the lives of the people like he had hoped for. So what did he do? He had another idea. I will build a temple. I will build a temple like no other in the worship and the presence of my God. I will make it so that all those in Israel who see this temple will know God's presence is here, that they can come and meet with God. I will make it so glorious that even nations will come and see this place. I will build a temple for my God. And he was going to raise the money for that temple, a house for the presence of God. He didn't want God to be useful to the people. He wanted God to be beautiful to them. Church, sometimes I, I, I believe it. How many of us, we come to church? You come to church like you pay your taxes. Right? I don't want to do it, but I have to. God is not beautiful enough that I would give my time, my energy, my focus, my reverence. He's useful because I'm afraid. I'm afraid what others would think if I don't show up on time. Right? And, and it, show, it shows in the way we worship. Our timeliness, always coming late, running out, always not gathering with the people, doing our own thing. God is useful if we're honest sometimes. He's not beautiful. What David wanted, and, what I, and I pray that we would want more than anything else, is that God is not just useful that he's beautiful, that he's worthy of worship, that his goodness and his beauty draws us to him, right? David wanted more than anything else for God's presence to be with his people. So how did he do it? How did he go about making this? He gets up in verse two and verse to verse five, he gives a speech. He gets up to before his people and he gives a speech. 
He said, I'm going to put all the money to build this temple. I'm going to gather all the resources in order to make it happen. But on top of that, I will put my own endowment into it. You guys know what endowment is? Endowment is a fund that's there to be used for that purpose over and over and over for the rest of their lives. So not only did he gather all the resources of the nation, all the stuff, all the miners, all the work, they brought everything together. On top of his ability as a king to gather all those resources, he said, I am going to put my own treasury into this. My own life savings, if you were to say. Everything I have, I'll put in. Let me tell you the magnitude of what he did. Because this, his act right there, what he was about to do right here, it literally broke the people. It changed their heart forever. What they saw in the life of their king, what they saw in his action, literally changed and melted their callous heart. And it brought them closer to their God. Because generosity and giving is a key component to having a true encounter with God. And this is, this is David's act right here. Look at what he did, verse 2 to 5. Let me read it again so you guys get the numbers down. With all my resources as a king, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx, turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stones and marbles, all these in large quantities, not just leftover, large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, in my heart to bring my God's presence to this people, in my devotion to ensure that God is seen as beautiful, not just as useful, I now give my personal treasure of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. So on top of everything that's already there, even this right here, and what did he give? The Bible says he gave 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver, of refined silver, for the overlaying of the walls. The gift he gave was ridiculous. It wasn't leftover change in his pocket. It wasn't just on the side, whatever he, he had. It was a gift that required sacrifice. It was a gift that actually hurt the king. 3,000 talents of gold. You know how much a talent is? In terms of, uh, of uh, 3,000 talents, it was equivalent to 100 tons, metric tons, in weight, okay? I did the math, I, I looked it up. Today's value of 100 tons of gold, okay? How much do you guys think of this? How much do you guys think of this? Yeah, $6 billion. It's the equivalent to $6 billion today. He gave 7,000 talents of silver, which is about 260 tons of silver. Equivalent value, $207 million. He gave $6.2 billion on top of already all the resources that was there. $6.2 billion on top of that as an endowment for this temple. David wasn't giving out of excess here. It wasn't like, oh, I got all this leftover money. Let me pass it out to the Lord. He was literally emptying his treasury. He was emptying his checkbook. He was emptying his bank account. It was an outstanding sacrificial gift. It was a gift that hurt. It was an offering that cost him, what? The lowering of his lifestyle. It was not an easy gift to give. It was not something that just felt comfortable to give. He gave to the point where it hurt. He gave to the point where his lifestyle was no longer the same lifestyle. 
He lowered his lifestyle. So people saw this. Imagine, imagine as a nation, you're like, how much did he give? 6.2 billion. Like, like he gave everything? This king of ours, most power, the height of glory, this king, he emptied his treasury? What? But on top of that, the motivation behind his gift. The motivation behind his gift was even more astounding. You know what the motivation was? Look at this, let's jump to verse 14 and 17. The motivation was this, there's three words. But who am I? But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all of our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you, are, you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. He says, God, you know my heart. This was his heart. This is what he's saying. You test the heart of men. You know their integrity. And what I'm telling you, God, his motivation was this. He saw God and he said, who am I that we were even able to give you like this? Who are we? He recognized his position before God. He recognizes his place before God himself. Sometimes, this is the problem of humanity, some, this is the problem with why we all sin, is that we think that we are above God. We think that we know better than God. We think that we can do things better than God. We think that we have greater wisdom and knowledge better than God. You see, we have it reversed. That is the big issue of, he, of what sin did. Sin reversed the role. And what Christ comes in is he re reversed that and he's re he restored it back to what it was supposed to be. Who am I before you? David, if you guys did not know, he accomplished great heights as a king. He did what no other king before him was able to do or that one king was not able to do. He beat down Goliath. He restored the nation. He was a man of the God's own heart, the Bible says. He was a man of war who won victory wherever he went. His kingdom expanded under David's rule. Yet he knew that none of that was his. He knew that everything he had was a gift given to him. See, the problem sometimes in your heart, if we're honest, in my heart too, if we're honest, is that we think we're self-made. We think that we did this ourselves. We think that by our ability, by our hard work, by all these things, that somehow it magically happened to us. David had the right perspective. He understood everything was by the grace of God. People who felt like they were self-made, they came, back from, came up from nothing. Said, well, I worked hard. That's why the doors were open for me. But why was that door open for you? Because I worked hard. Why did you work harder than other people? Why was that opportunity open to you versus nobody else? Somewhere along the line, somewhere along that journey, if you're honest, it is the grace of God bearing his power unto history, 
moving pieces to bring you to where you are. Everything you have belonged to him. Everything you are belonged to him. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner we grasp that, the easier it will be for us. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that you're going to spend your whole entire life chasing, thinking, I can do this by my strength, by my power. That was the very first sin that got us to this place. That was the very first sin that we've inherited from the very beginning that got us in this place, that I can do this on my own, that I have the ability. How arrogant, oh my goodness, the height of arrogance of your heart, of our hearts, to believe in for a moment that you were able to accomplish anything if not by the grace of God. Why are you here? My parents came from the war. They made it over to the boat. Why did they make it while other people died? Well, they had a good boat, I guess. <laughs> but why were they on that boat? Well, it's because they were rich and they were able to pay their passage fee. Well, why were they rich versus everybody else? Well, it's because my generation owned farms and land. Well, why did they own farms and lands versus everybody else? What was so special about you? And if you keep going back and back and back, you begin to realize every moment like that, guys, if it was not for the hand of grace, the hand of God bearing power upon it, you would not be here. And the arrogance that we have to believe everything I have is mine, right? My checking account, that's mine. My saving account, that's mine. Roth IRA, that's mine. 401k, that's mine. In a culture that saw kings equivalent to gods, right? In an ancient culture where kings were equivalent to God, David stood up and said, who am I? I'm nobody. I was a shepherd boy, plucked from obscurity. Who am I among my brothers that you would choose me? Who am I? among all the nations and all the tribes that you would pick me. I don't deserve, even David was like, I don't even deserve to give you this money. It already belongs to you. And he gave that staggering amount. He gave that staggering amount. It was not excess. He gave that staggering amount because why? Because of the grace of God in his life. He knew that everything he had was by the grace of God. And you know what that did? You know what that did? It broke the people. It, it, it finally did what David always wanted. It moved the people's heart for God. They saw their king sacrificially give to such a degree that it literally transformed the way they thought, the way they felt, the way, it broke all selfish intentions, all motivation, and they said, if our King David was willing to do this for our God, oh man, it changes the life of people. Check it out, check out verse six to nine. So after David said, so who is willing to consecrate himself today? 
Verse 6, it says this, Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave towards the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel and Gershonite, the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing responsiveness of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Seeing David's response to the grace of God, seeing David, seeing their king, understanding that God wasn't just useful to David, that God wasn't just existing for David's sake, that God was beautiful to David, that God was worthy to David, that God is awesome to David, the leaders and the people's heart were moved. I didn't, I didn't do the math for what it cost them, right? But the principle behind this was this. They were diverting national resources. All the leaders, all the officials, they were diverting national resources towards what? The temple. Towards ministry. Because you know what the temple was? The temple wasn't just a place of worship. It was a place of justice. It's where the poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners can come to receive help to be taken care of. It was a place where justice was administered. The temple wasn't just a place of worship. It was a, taste, it was a place, it was a ministry of God's word being proclaimed. It was a ministry of justice for the poor and the downtrodden. It was a ministry of worship for the faithful. They diverted national resources for what purpose? To help minister to those around them. Now, why were they doing this? Why were they doing this? The Bible says their hearts were changed. Their hearts were changed. They gave freely, no longer under for force or under compulsion or feeling obligated to give. They were liberated to give. Something about them, it, it, something about their, their, their spirit and their heart was freed up. Seeing that David responded to the grace of God, their heart was freed up and they gave wholeheartedly, the Bible says. It meant that their heart was so satisfied by the grace of God the love of God that they, could, that they could give without holding back. That they were able to give without holding back. David's sacrifice, listen, his sacrificial, selfless sacrifice to the grace of God, it moved the people. It liberated them from the power of money over their lives. You guys get that? All throughout New Testament, you know what Jesus spoke the most about? It wasn't about drinking. It wasn't about adultery. He spoke about those things. He said, above all those sins, the one that you're supposed to watch out for, you have to watch out for it. You know why? To watch out for the sin of greed. Nobody knows when they're greedy. No one assumes that they're greedy, by the way. You know when you're committing adultery. It's not like, oh, I didn't know you were my wife. <laughs> Just kidding, right? Everyone knows when they're committing a specific sin, but not everyone knows when they are greedy. There's no number there that creates greediness. The greediness is a, it's a, it's a symptom of the heart. It was something that it was part of a deep, ingrained worship in them. And all throughout New Testament, it says, watch out. Pay attention. Let not your eyes be darkened. 
Because greed, greed and money gives you this illusion. It's the illusion of security, the illusion of power, the illusion of self-worth. But it's an illusion. You know why? Because money, money can't fix divorces. Money can't fix cancer. Money can't bring forgiveness. Money can't bring someone back from the dead. The illusion that money is somehow, if I have it, then I'm secure and everything is great. That is an illusion and a lie and a voice of Satan speaking into our generation. When David said, I am who I am because of the grace of God, Nothing I have or own or have done was ever done without God. These achievements, my accomplishments, are nothing to me. David was able to freely give because of the grace of God and that his sacrificial gift broke the chain of money over the people. This is you guys understand this principle. That when you are willing to respond to the grace of God in an over-the-top manner, in a willingness to be hurt beyond anything else for the grace of God. It changes those around you. It changes those who have grown up in the church and who've known these things. I remember when I was in youth group. When I was in youth group. How many of us grew up in the church? Grew up in the church, yeah, right? Grew up in the church. God is always known to you. You've always, but he's never really grasped your heart. You never really understand the worth, the beauty, the, the power of worshiping God and loving him and, and desiring him. I remember in youth group, back in the days, and I was looking over a lot of my youth group stuff, one of, our, one of my old kids passed away this week. It was really sad that I taught. But even before I taught him out, when I was in youth group, when I was in high school sitting in those very chairs at that time, I remember, I remember, most of these kids that, that was with me in that church, they grew up in the church. Church was like paying taxes to them. They have to come. They weren't, com they weren't compelled to come. But I remember this one girl, one girl got saved into the community, got saved by God into that place. And at the cost of her being beaten by her father to come, she came. And everyone was like, just stay home. Just stay home. There's no, you don't have to, right? We'll figure it out. No, no point in this. But she still came. Why? Because God wasn't just useful to her. God was beautiful to her. He was beautiful. You know what it did? It, it, started, it started breaking these chains that was in the heart of the church members. So I've grown up all my life. I've never gotten beaten up for my faith before. How does that feel like? What kind of God do you worship that you will go through this height? And you know, she was like, isn't it the same as your God? <laughs> Are we worshiping the same God here? It can't be. Because for you, you're willing to lay it down. But for me, I don't even know. I'm just going through the motion. God is useful 
He wasn't beautiful. There's a principle here that when you begin to live a life that's beyond, that, 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 that actually reflects the reality of who God is in your life, it begins to make the people who've grown up in the church, who've known this all their life, begin to question, why is it that when someone's really, so when, you, when, you, when, when someone first comes to faith and they're really excited in the church, they come in and you, and you kind of feed off of their excitement, don't you? You feed off their fire. You're like, wow, where is this fire coming from? Oh, I wish I had that. Oh, I, I remember when I used to have that. Where is it? Where is it now? And you're living off this fire and you forget and you forget yourself. There's something about that. You remember, oh, they respond, they're actually responding to God. They're actually responding to the beauty of God, to the goodness of God. They actually understand what it meant for him to die on the cross for their sins. They actually understand the difference between hell and heaven. They actually understand eternal damnation and eternal rewards. They understand this to the very depth of their heart. That's why they're acting like this. Why have I forgotten that? And that's how the people felt with King David. David didn't live his life. He didn't give out of a compulsory act. He gave, didn't give out of excess. He gave as a sacrifice above and beyond everything else. And they looked upon David. They saw his act. They saw his sacrifice. And they're saying, he's responding to the grace of God. The grace of God that took us out of Egypt, when we were slaves for 400 years, the same grace of God that brought us through the desert, the part of the Red Sea that gave us the cloud of fire by day and then and, uh, by night and the cloud of, um, cloud of by heaven, right? The same God that did miracles, the same God that brought us into this land, the same God that brought down the walls of Jericho, this same God David is responding to. He's not useful, he's beautiful. Why have we forgotten that? Why have we forgotten that? And the people's heart melted. And they realized we have forgotten. David's act of sacrificial, selfless giving broke the chain of money's devotion upon their hearts. Some of us, guys, oh man, some of us, we give our force and compulsion here at this church. Right? Mostly because we haven't had the power of money broken in our lives. We, we, we calculate to the very dime of what is convenient for me to give, what is okay for me to give. And we make these Christianese words of saying, well, I'm just trying to be a good steward. Do you know what a steward is? A steward is someone who realizes that the money is not yours. Amen. The steward is somebody who realized, look, I have been given this. The question that I need to be asking is, what does God want me to do with this? Not, here's God, your share. Here's my share. And here's what I'm going to do for myself. A steward says, God, I give back to you as an act of my offering for what you have. God, I praise you that you have given me enough that I may live and not die today that I would have my daily bread and pay my debts and my bills to survive. And God, whatever is left, I now ask you this one simple question. What would you have me do with it? That's a steward. 
But, but sometimes our church, our definition of stewardship has changed. We're just thinking the word stewardship means I gotta be responsible to myself with my money. That I need to be responsible to myself with this stuff. And so we give out of compulsory. We give like we give to taxes. I don't want to, but I have to. You see, David's gift, let me tell you what, let me, let me tell you the chain reaction that did this. David's gift in response to the reality of God's grace broke the power of money over the people and they began to do what? To give from their hearts to God, which led them to give what? To give more to God. The more they gave to God, the more they gave their hearts to God, the more they're willing to even give even more than that because they began to realize the illusion that I've been living in, the God that I've been worshiping was not my God, was not Yahweh, the God that I've been worshiping was the dollar bill. My security, my worth, my value was found in this dollar bill. So I need more of it so that I can have the nicer house, the nicer car, the nicer home, the nicer bed. I need more of it so that I can become better. Versus, versus, these guys, they did what? They diverted national resources to one thing only, to the temple where ministry was done, where the caring of people were being exerted, where the giving was to, to do what? The equivalent of that would be giving to helping kids in uh, skid row out of their poverty, working with kids or working with people who are in need giving their resources to elevate those around them, to minister justice for those who have, been, who have been a part of a system that has shown them injustice. That's what the resource was for. That's what the church was meant to be. The temple was meant to be that way. You see, but they use their resources for what? To expand my wealth, my name, my home, my place. And so the question finally comes down to this. I get it, okay, I get it. Something about generosity actually creates in our hearts an encounter with God. Something about not just convenient generosity, not just comfortable generosity, but extravagant social life deteriorating generosity Emotional hurt generosity, where it actually hurts, it actually cuts into my life generosity, creates an encounter with God. I get that. In principle, I get it in scripture. But PT, man, I, don't, I, don't, I really am still struggling with the idea. Right? I still feel like I worked hard for this money. I still feel like I went to school long. I deserve this. These toys I have, I deserve it. How am I supposed to even come to a place thinking like that? And the answer is how David came to it. By understanding the selfless, sacrificial giving of the Father, the grace of God in your life. 18 to 20. 
This is, this is him towards the end right here. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people. He says, just don't let them lose this, God. Keep it in there. Keep your presence with them forever. Keep your grace in their life forever. Keep their hearts loyal to you forever. And give my son the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and their king. Solomon was to build the temple. Solomon was David's son. Why? Because David couldn't build it. David couldn't build a temple. David went to God and said, God, I, in response to your grace, I want to build this temple for you. I want the world to know you. I want their hearts to be with you. I want to do it. And God said, no, for your hand is full of blood. My temple is a temple and a place of peace. You know what that means? God has always ordained that place, that temple of God, his, his temple, to be a place where peace reigns. His shalom is there. The temple is to be a place of healing. So God said, Solomon will do it. Solomon will be a man of peace, and I will be his father, and he will be my son, and I will establish his throne forever. He will build the temple, and he will bring my presence to the people. This is what God told David. David said, okay, but I'll gather all the resources for him. He will have the hard job of building it, but I will provide everything he needs and more for the future of this place, for the future of this place of healing and justice and worship and ministry and the word for you. I'll provide everything. The picture here is this. The temple is a sign of, future healed, is a sign of the future healed world that God will bring about. God wants to bring healing through this temple. And it was, a, it was a foreshadowing of what's to come. The temple was not a place of rituals, not just a place of rituals, it was a place where all of the ministry and care for the people were to be done in the future. And Solomon was gonna be doing that. But something, something weird about this promise, you know what it was? God said Solomon's throne will last forever. Did it happen? Did his dynasty last forever? No, it did not. His throne was not maybe the legacy of it. Even that legacy wasn't there forever. There's no king right now. No physical king. So what was God saying? Was he lying was, when he made this promise? No. It was a foreshadowing of who? Please say it. Jesus, right? In Jesus was the Father's plan to bridge the world to him. In Jesus was to be the very healing of the world. Jesus is the true and perfect temple. Jesus was not just to point us to grace, but Jesus was going to make grace possible for us. Jesus is the true and perfect temple. God the Father, I want you to imagine this. God the Father emptied his treasury. Empty heaven of his one greatest treasure that was worth more than any gold and silver. He emptied heaven, the Father emptied heaven of his greatest treasure worth infinitely more than anything else, he emptied his son and he poured out his son. He gave his son as the sacrifice. And what was the father's motive behind that? What was the father's motive behind the treasury? It was you. 
is that he would be able to heal you from the curse of sin upon your life to ensure that you step into the very road and trajectory of the glory that's before you. He emptied heaven with a love to heal you, to bring peace to your heart, peace to your heart that in a broken and a messed up world that you're constantly making every excuses for. He did that. And he wasn't just gonna point you to grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was going to become the very essence of how grace is possible for you. Listen, if the sacrificial generosity of David moved the people into life-changing, heartfelt generosity, what should the infinitely great king, the infinitely sacrificial generosity of our king do for us? He's the temple. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. We didn't get a religion. We didn't get a place of worship. We got a person. We got Christ himself. Do you know how you can live your life magnanimously generous like this? That you can have this true encounter with God giving up your energy, your time, your resources, even your treasures, sacrificing everything you have, when you understand the work of Christ in your life, when you know it to the very depth of your heart, where it transforms you and it shakes you to the core so that now you live forever with that truth and that reality in mind, what's to come? The very thing that David wanted for his people, Jesus became for us. Let me ask you guys this question. Because I know, I, maybe it's a little bit harder. Let me, let me, try, let me try to paint it one, one last way. Okay. Twenty years ago, knowing what you know now, certain of what, you, of, of what is happening now, when Bitcoin was a dollar, how many of you guys would have bought it? What would you do? Knowing what you know now, would you just buy one? Would you, would you sell the farm for it? Probably, right? I asked one of the kids in youth group, what would you do? I said, I will beg my mom. I, said, I, was, I wasn't born yet, but I will, if I can go back, I would beg them. I would plead with all my heart. Oh, please, just buy it, right? I say this because a buddy of mine, he posted, he used to have 30 bitcoins. He bought it for a dollar each. 20 years ago, he made a post. Oh, not, uh, a few years back, he made a post, right? Oh, a while back, when it was a dollar, he made a post. He said, is this worth anything? And he sold all 30 of them, right? And he said, this age like rancid milk. He, every time he looked at me, he said, I, I could have been a millionaire, man. I could have I been a millionaire. Certain of what I was. And if you were certain, if, you were, if, if going back and you were certain of what was to come, you know you would change. You know you would do so many things differently. You know you would act, talk, be in a certain way. You would beg the certainty that we have is Christ died and resurrected. The certainty in which we have is that he is pleading for our case, that he is our savior and he is our Lord and there is something eternal waiting for us. There is he himself 
that has the certainty and the promise of the resurrection. That is the certainty of it. Until you understand that, the way you live, the way you speak, the way you give, the way you are, oh man. I pray, I pray it will never be on that day when we stand before God. We would say, man, this age that granted milk. If I knew, if I knew that this is all there, if I knew it to the depths of my soul, I would have gone back and begged myself to do it differently. Instead of thinking like that, why don't you start now? Why don't you start now? With the certainty of Christ and what he has done. The question you have to ask is not how you feel. It's not what is practical, or what's convenient, what's comfortable. The question you have to ask is very simple. Did Jesus Christ come back from the dead? Did he come back from the dead? And if he did come back from the dead, then everything in this life has to be centered from that devotion. If he didn't, whatever, who cares? I hope you know, I'm not here to preach this for a paycheck. I don't run this church because I have nothing better to do with my life. To the very depth, to the very heart of what I know and what I believe, this to be true. And I preach it and I share it weekly and I try to live it out to the best of my ability, failing tremendously over and over so that you would know that this is certain and this is real. Look guys, if I don't get paid, I'll still do this. There's nothing else to do. There's no other message to preach. There's nothing else to give. It's just this. Would we wake up in the midst of your life, in the midst of who you are? Think about your job, your work, your family. What are you building in? What rhythms are you creating? What are you doing? If this certainty is true, if Christ came back from the dead, oh, I pray that we would change our hearts today. Let's pray.